My name's Kent. I'm a pastor at Soma. Um, and uh, let me just say to anyone uh, who was not at 412 yesterday, just to increase your FOMO, you missed out. That, uh, it was really cool. It was like, yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed it completely uh, the whole time, uh, just hearing from members, like all of the the topics and the talks were like really good. And um, yeah, it was just a really cool, even just uh, the worship experience that uh, Tayshawn and Crystal crafted was fantastic. And just thank you for those who served and participated. That was awesome. Um, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll jump in to fasting and feasting. Father God, I pray for your spirit to clarify, your spirit to, though not clarify what you want to leave with us to wrestle. Lord, sometimes um, we really want things distilled down and packaged and given with clear, tangible takeaways. And there's so much of your scripture that does do that, and so much of it that does not. And Lord, as uh, me and our pastoral team have just been wrestling with this very unfamiliar territory of fasting, I pray that we would then just bring ourselves into that this morning. And we allow ourselves to uh, wrestle with uh, what is unclear, Lord, to uh, obediently step into freedom where it is clear. Uh, And Lord, I just pray for you to uh, to, in your spirit, discern in uh, minds here, uh, both of those, the clear and the unclear, the wrestle and the, and the obedient. Um, and Lord, uh, in all of this, we continually cloak all these things in the sense that we are not accepted because we put on a obedient presentation of fasting and showing that we want things enough, but we are accepted in the blood of Christ and in the righteousness of Jesus, that each one here who claims Jesus is seen as perfect in that will. And then we merely have a way to be invited into experiencing a depth of your spirit, a depth of your presence, not to earn our salvation, but to sit in it in a deeper way. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be true over all these spiritual formation series, including this one, Lord, and not be a spirit of legalism or a spirit of earning or guilt or shame, uh, but a spirit of freedom, of joy, of yes, wrestling, of yes, struggle, but in a way that is shaping us more in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you... As a human, have a relationship to food, and you may be someone in this room that is very aware of that. You think about that on a regular basis. Every single meal, you think about that. Every single calorie that goes into your body, you think about, you've calculated, or you've pre-calculated before they've gone in your body. Or you could be somebody who is extremely unaware of that. You could be someone who doesn't really think about it. Um, Your body and food and all the things in between are just really just what happened and it's just not a big part of your life today. As modern Western Americans, you typically have a very sordid relationship to food. 
in the sense that we have a continually growing foodie culture in America. Um, not all countries equally care about food. I mean, I remember like being in Europe and like there's a reason why they talk about French cuisine and then England is just kind of like they use it just to get by in the day. And yet in our time and age, there's this growth of like restaurants and foodie and presentation and all the things that go with that. And by the way, I'm all for this week marks Valentine's Day, which is the one of two days of the year that my wife and I eat like we make more money than we do. And it is phenomenal, and we're excited about Friday. But there's also this sense that leads to our culture of a relationship with food and that of gluttony. And of course, this is not very under-publicized or under, uh, under-publicized in America. Uh, you have the idea that obesity and overweight uh, affect about three-quarters of Americans, including one-third of children. And uh, we're doing our part. We actually just got two out of the four of our children uh, marked down as overweight, uh, including the baby. Don't talk to her about it. I'm not ready to deal with body image with her yet. Um, that's a whole thing that I have to deal with later in life. But either way, uh, and so we have this sense of where it can lead to gluttony. Um, I, there's a pastor uh, and his wife in our, uh, our network. We're part of a network called the Sojourn Network, which plants churches across the country. And uh, there's a pastor and his wife down in Bloomington, Indiana. And they talked about one time where uh, they, uh, all of a sudden they showed up, like, uh, I, and I hadn't seen them in about a year, and they had both dropped a ton of weight. And it was one of those things where you're just like, you want to be polite, but you're like, goo, whoa, like, you know. And, uh, and you want to be like, man, like, what are you, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we... We started to get really serious because we were at the, a conference last year, and it was like a time of feasting, and they were like saying, like, yeah, guys, let's like, you know, just not worry about the calories, let's just feast today. And then we realized we feast every day. We never worry about it. We always get what we want when it comes to food. And there was something that was unhealthy about that relationship. And then it can go to, um, it, it, it makes me think of, uh, there's a scene, if you've read The Hunger Games, there's a scene in which the whole book is like the future and there's this capital which all the money and all the wealth and all the prosperity is in and then all the districts around the country which is, you know, America and a future time which are in poverty and are, are enslaved in many ways by the capital. And there's a person from one of these outer districts uh, who goes into the capital and attends a party. And at the party, they're just all these people gorging themselves on all this food. And then they go and they find themselves so full that they will find a, a little vial of liquid and they drink it, causing themselves to vomit so that they can ingest more food. And the character is just like enraged by this sense of that there's people starving all over this country, but yet there's these people eating and then vomiting so they can eat more. And it's a really ugly mirror. Because we as Americans have a sordid relationship with food, not only because we have gluttony, but we also have higher presence of eating disorders. There is not a lot of eating disorders outside of a Western world. In fact, it's specifically, if you get down to it, more of a white issue than anything else. Now, this is a growing issue in non-Western countries and in all cultures. Good news, everyone's catching up. But it's simply, historically, something about a culture that is throughout the Western world that creates eating disorders at a higher level. And then, of course, you get the idea of 
uh, food as fuel, where it's like literally you just like think about like just the calorie intake or the nutrient intake, and it becomes like basically like it starts as a metaphor, but it kind of like starts to take on this real idea that you are a machine, and the food that you intake is simply the fuel to make you productive, to get things done. And of course, there's the latest trend in the health craze of intermittent fasting, which is essentially that you don't eat breakfast and lunch, so you go crazy at dinner. And uh, it's supposed to like be better for your body to like rest from eating more. There was once the point where like, no, you need to eat a lot of small meals to have a higher metabolism. Like, well, no, but now you need to give like your internal organs more rest in between meals. And it continually is getting all clarified throughout the years. And uh, my point this. With all of this relationship to food have, whenever I hit you or didn't hit you on that spectrum, fasting and feasting is a real struggle for us. We don't fast. And we don't feast in the way that the Bible connects it to our discipleship to Jesus. And so therefore we get off. And again, we don't fast. And that's interesting because it's really only the last hundred years of Western Christianity that has not. We are an anomaly, not the rule. All throughout history, in fact, throughout just the history of Christianity, which of course predates even into Christ, Judaism, and Judaism, a good Jew would fast twice a week, Every week, Mondays and Thursdays, which of course is where you got a case in Mondays comes from. Oh, and also Thursday, Thursdays, little in fact. And so you have the idea that these fasting would be twice a week, every week. And that was just simply part of the warp and woof of being a Jew. Jesus would have fasted twice a week, every week. And you think like, okay, well, that's the old covenant, that's Judaism, that got done away with. But then early Christianity, the early church, adopted the same principle. They just decided we want to be distinct from Judaism. We're still going to fast twice a day. We're just going to do it on Wednesday and Friday. And so Christianity, throughout all the earlies of the church, would also fast twice a week. And all of church history and church fathers, you see all throughout them, them having this distinct relationship with the practice of fasting. And all of a sudden, it takes a nosedive off of a cliff to where if you fast, it's like something you did once in college. And it was like a weird thing. It's an anomaly. It's the exception. It's not the rule. And part of it is because it just like sounds so crazy to us. Like it sounds like cultish or just... It, it reminds us of abuse of ascetic disciplines, uh, such as fasting, that were, took place, particularly in the Middle Ages. I mean, we hear all about, like, kind of like the classic monkish behavior. Uh, one, uh, just in a quote about St. Anthony, uh, Athanasius, who wrote about the life of St. Anthony, who was a monk uh, in Africa uh, and was one of the desert fathers. He uh, said this about St. Anthony. He said, when he was about to eat and sleep and provide for the other needs of a of the body, shame overcame him as he thought of the spiritual nature of his soul, that the spirit must not be dragged down by the pleasures of the body, but rather that the body must be made subject to the soul. And we reject that, and that's good to reject. 
Ultimately, Paul even rejects that. I mean, that's Colossians 2, where he says, hey, if you with Christ have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but, and this is key, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Yeah, they seem like they have some sort of like wisdom to them, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. At least not by themselves, I would argue, is what Paul is saying. And, and so we have that sense where we've had like a, a sense of leeriness towards fasting. I think there's also just like a level of like it seems like maybe more of like a uh, a Catholic thing or an Eastern religion thing, or maybe it gets associated with even just, I mean, all religions have some form of fasting. Hindus have fasting. Buddhism has fasting. So there's some level of like, yeah, it seems like it's connected more to that. Uh, I think there's also a reason that we struggle to fast just generally because of hedonism rules of the day, and we just don't want to. And then I think it all gets tied up, though, in this concept of humanity is dualistic, but we take that to dualism. And what I mean is this. Genesis 1, God creates humanity, and he creates them, and he, he takes dirt, dust. I mean, it's, it's talking about like he's taking the things of this world, just what it is, and forming it together as humanity, and then breathes life. It's the same word, breath, as for spirit. He breathes life into the human. At that moment, we see this creature the only one that is depicted as being created in both the materialist world and the spirit, the breath of God living in us. And so all of a sudden, creates this duality of humanity. That there is a worldly nature to us and a spiritual nature to us, and both are a part of our design. This gets picked up and you start even seeing like more nuance to it throughout the scriptures. You see the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Therefore worship the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. You see like these different components start coming in, but yet they all refer to one person. It gets even more nuanced in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you get words, I mean, here's all the words that are referred to as in our humanity. You get cardia, which is heart. You get psyche, which is soul. You get sarx, which is flesh. You get soma, which is body. Uh, yeah, uh, look at that. Uh, not an acronym. You don't have to capitalize it. So just everyone who emails me, no one ever fails to capitalize all four letters. Um, I always like that, like, what could it be? Like servants of the master's army? No. Um, either way. Uh, nos, which is mind, pneuma, which is spirit, and telema, which is will. Uh, you feel this. You feel this sense of this divided nature within you, that there's parts of you that desire different things at different times. There's parts that you war with yourself, but yet you're all very much so one person, one being, one entity. You're tied together. It's interesting because dualism, 
dualisticness, of course, is recognizing there are multiple components to the human reality that are true at one time and are all held together. Dualism is taking those things and assigning a hierarchy to them. And so this is where you get Plato of ancient Greece and Platonic thought, which forms into Gnosticism and all different ideas, surrounding the idea that there is a physical and there is a spiritual. There is the dust and there is the breath. And that those are separate and you are meant to ditch one to be fully engulfed in the other. Get out of the physical and fully engulfed in the spiritual. And so much of not just of historic ways that Christianity has gotten off, but just religions in general about the idea of just like, can I just do away with the physical so I can be fully free into the spiritual? Christianity is unique in which in its roots and in its design concept of humanity, it says, no, you are fundamentally both held together. You are not dividing the physical from the spiritual. One is not better than the other. You are both. In fact, what crazy, crazy just levels of depiction of God is it that he says, I actually entered in and became human. And it wasn't just like him just coming in and really being God and only kind of being human. It's like fully entering in and being a human who learned and had to eat and had to like form along and actually had bowel movements and diapers and all that stuff that would come along with being a human. God comes in and enters into that realm a huge, huge affirmation of the physical world that you almost get no other world system or faith system. And so you get this dualism, the division, the spiritual, the physical. And so you get four main ways that Scott McKnight, who writes a book, he's a theologian, he writes a book on fasting, which I'd recommend to you. I find it very helpful. And it's also caused a lot of wrestle with his view on fasting versus mine. Uh, it's made me wrestle a lot of just what I've thought about it, and I've really been helped by that. But he says there's four main ways that you see your body, uh, typically, because of this dualism in American thinking. And the four ways are this. It is a monster to be tamed. It is a celebrity to be worshipped. It is a cornucopia to be filled. Or it is a wallflower to be ignored. So brief word on each. It is a monster to be tamed. This is asceticism. This is piety overdone. Um, this is where you get a level of just a repressive relationship to the body, uh, to desire, uh, particularly food and sexual desires are, are typically where the church or just humanity in general has just said like, okay, those are physical, those are earthly. We need to do away with those and push those down so that we can be freed up to the fullness of spiritual, uh, spiritual freedom and all those things. And so it becomes this relationship of like an antagonistic one. My body is just something that I have to try to break free and master and put down so that I can be lifted up to who I truly am. It's not ultimately a Christian idea. Uh, it's, you're like, how is that not a Christian idea? That is my entire experience of Christianity. Ah, easy enough. It's not actually an accurate one. Uh, second, is a celebrity to be worshipped? Uh, in this case... Uh, where fasting is asceticism and monster, and celebrity, fasting is useful. It's kind of helpful because it can help tame and control the body to uh, shape it to be the way that you want it to be. This is, uh, I don't know if this is, I've, this has been credited in my mind to Kate Moss and also Weight Watchers. I don't know which one said it, maybe both of them. Maybe, maybe Kate Moss said it on a Weight Watchers commercial. But it's, uh, that she's credited as saying, nothing tastes as good as thin feels. 
which of course, Jim Gaffigan uh, is quoted as saying, I can think of a few things that taste better than Thin Fields. Everything. And that is the focus of Cornucopia to be Filled, which is hedonism. Of everything and anything tastes better than Thin Fields, and so my body is to be filled and to be enjoyed. And whether you do it in a way that bounces back and forth between a celebrity to be worshipped and a Cornucopia to be Filled, I mean, you can mix and match a lot of these. Or a monster to be tamed, and then every once in a while, you, the monster gets out, and it's a cornucopia to be filled. That that's a way to relate to the body, or then, of course, the wallflower to be ignored. This is the Gnostic idea. You are a brain on a stick. Your body is a vehicle for your spirit or your mind. And it's not a monster. It's not really anything of consequence at all. What you do with it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. And so... Uh, Scott McKnight, again, in his book, says telling Westerners, pastors sitting there screaming at Westerners saying, you need to fast, you need to fast, is like telling them to milk their own cows. They don't have the cows in their yard. They don't have the necessary equipment. And of course, it's not just in a physical reality to be said, like mentally, spiritually. We don't have a relationship to our body that makes us understand what fasting is for. So what is fasting? This is actually important to define because there's actually, I think, some level of confusion. Uh, of course, it's always sometimes helpful to start with the negative, what fasting is not. Fasting is not abstaining from things. And this is a common confusion, particularly around the time of Lent, which is coming up, where you give something up. And so you fast from something. People say, like, I'm fasting from TV, I'm fasting from social media, I'm fasting from my phone, I'm fasting from dessert or something like that. And that is a good practice, and that is a, typically there's some fruit and rhythm, and there's some good things that happen to those. But ultimately, it is different, at least in how the Bible is going to talk about fasting, which is explicitly food, and water, drink, in many cases, in some cases. So it's not abstaining, and it is ultimately not a partial or restricted diet. That is a form of fasting, as we'll he- see here in a second. But ultimately, people talk about like the Daniel fast, uh, where you eat just like, you know, like certain vegetables and things like that and do it with a lot of meats and everything, uh, which people typically use more as a cleanse than anything else. But typically, that is uh, also not a bad thing. It's just not uh, the same thing as fasting. Um, and then there's, uh, again, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, which is... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fasting in a sense. And even like you're, you'll see, it actually mirrors a lot of ways that Christianity used fasting, which is interesting always that we talk about the fact of like there's just things that God worked into reality that seemed to like we later realize, hey, there could be some real value to this. But ultimately, it's the heart behind it that changes the purpose of what exactly it is. And so uh, what is fasting then? It's not eating. And in some cases, not drinking. You have three basic forms of fast. There's the partial fast, which is, again, limiting certain foods or certain drink and and doing away with that for a time. You have what they call the normal fast in the Bible, which is typically not food, but you would still drink water. Or then you have the total fast, which would be no food, no liquid, nothing. Most fasts, biblically speaking, last for one day, usually skipping two meals, breakfast and lunch. And then eating when the sun goes down, either a simple dinner or something else. Some of them, notably, last much longer than that. 
but the average is about one day. And so if that is the what of fasting, uh, what we're going to be doing in this series is just talking through the why of fasting and wrestling through uh, why you do so. And I think there's, there's lots of different ways. I've found uh, several different uh, reasons for fasting. Um, we're trying to uh, somewhat categorize them. And uh, these will kind of give us a series, uh, our series in fasting and then at the end feasting. Uh, we have our whys, our one, turning from sin, which we'll deal with a little bit today. Uh, two, for prayer. Three, for pursuit of justice. Uh, and then lastly, our last week, we'll talk about uh, feasting and why feast. You're like, why are we doing three on fasting and one on feasting? Because all I have to do is just align the why on that. I don't have to, like, convince you that hard. So, um, but either way, we are going to get to that. Um, but first, in this week, turning from sin. Uh, if you look through the scriptures, the most common reason to fast or that people declare that they are fasting is to turn from sin. And so this is biblically the most common way or most common reason for it. And again, you see this um, depl- uh, displayed all throughout the scriptures, but also in the life of Jesus. And so if you could open Matthew 4 with me, which is page 809. So as you turn there, to understand Matthew 4 properly, you have to be somebody who is constantly immersed in Genesis 1 through 3. Because Genesis 1 through 3, of course, tell, as we talk about on a really regular basis, the creation of all things, including humanity, and there's all these things that we get about the relationship between God and man and, 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 uh, and humanity in general. And, and then you get this sense of... Um, God and humanity in intimate relationship, which then is broken by God giving out the first command and saying, hey, I want you to enjoy all things. I want you to take the Garden of Eden. I want you to spread around the world, but I want you to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so humanity, in that moment of sin, takes the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. They say, I want this, and I want to be on my terms. And then sin and death and decay and all these things, demonic, all those things begin to enter into the world and begin to spiral out of control. And so you get this moment where humanity is asked in a given a choice, do not take of this, but rather rely on me. And then you have to have that clear in your mind as you read Matthew 4. It is the first main story of Jesus, and there's a reason for it. Verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the uh, pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
Genesis 3, when you get creation and you get the declare that uh, uh, God declares humanity will rule over creation, that you will have dominion over the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and you are going to take and control and rule with me. You will be my co-rulers of this whole world, this whole creation. But then interestingly enough, in Genesis 3, you see it go badly by the creative order being subverted. That humanity is ruled by creation. First by a snake, a created being that shows up and begins dictating what the humanity's relationship to God. And then also just by their desire towards a food, towards eating something. And all of a sudden you have Jesus entering in and replaying the same scene in the wilderness. And now he has been led by the Spirit to fast or to be out here and to be tempted. And says, how does, he, how does he succeed? Well, ultimately, there's probably a lot of things you could say. Like he, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, he's in solitude. Uh, he's in prayer. He's fasting. I would guess on some level he has scripture meditation and scripture memory going through his veins. At least it seems like that when he starts getting spoken to, to the, uh, by the devil. And the Spirit leads him out to be tempted, fasting for 40 days. And so he's in a heightened weakness of desire. And we know that because the first thing the devil tries to tempt him with is food. Yet, this is the preparation for Jesus to replay the challenge of all of humanity. Because though he is weaker in his desire for food, there is a depth of clarity, of resolve, of purpose, of being awake to the reality of what's really going on. See, people have talked about this where Jesus goes out for 40 days and fasts, and then he's at the height of his powers. But it's not like he's like levitating and shooting lasers out of his eyes. He has like this distinct level of awakened clarity. This body and spirit and whole humanity experience. That's ultimately what we want with our Christianity. We don't want, not just Christianity, just like life in general. We live in this place where we've made dualism, where we've separated the body and the spiritual, but yet there's something about this day and age, maybe more than ever, because of our digitalized world that we crave tangible and physical. And that's why I think there's like this move to like when you worship, like just to be able to like raise hands or move the body. That's why a lot of times when you do the passing, the, uh, the benediction, I've asked and I've seen a lot of people still continue to even when I don't, just for you to hold out your hands and receive something because there's just something about physically embodying. I mean, C.S. Lewis got this. He wrote about like the idea that humans just like don't understand that like when you kneel, there's something to that. There's something about taking on a physical body posture of submissive humility that, that just truly has an effect, not just on your body's position geographically in the world or coordinately in the world, but to your soul. That there's something about lighting a candle and seeking the presence and just reminding yourself the Spirit of God is here. It's not like 
candle itself is the spirit of God, but there's something about just having things that are real and earthy and tangible that we are beginning to crave more than ever. Again, Scott McKnight gets at this when he talks about the A, B, C format of fasting. It says, in this idea, B is the act of fasting, which is where most of us begin. C is a desired result of the fast, which is what most of us focus on. A is just the context you find yourself in that moves you too fast, which we mainly ignore. Again, we live in a sense where like, I have a desired result for fasting, C, and so I will fast to get that result, B. But Scott McKnight says, and it's like, it's such a subtle thing, and I've been wrestling with it, and I invite you into the wrestle. It's a subtle difference of starting back further and saying like, no, we, we live in a physical and broken world. And fasting really is almost a natural response when we're well acquainted with that fact. It's almost unnatural not to fast. And you know that because if you've ever experienced grief. Interestingly enough, being in hospitals a lot recently and in a hospital uh, recently with uh, a couple, as many of you know, just a few of our families that have lost children with a couple that lost their child and they bring in a plate of cookies, which is a really interesting thing and very American. Like, you're grieving and here's cookies. <laughs> Nobody ate a cookie. Nobody ate anything. I've talked with now multiple people in the quick succession who have experienced a level of grief and they're just saying like, one of them said, I look at this food and realize I have to eat it. But it almost becomes a discipline to do it. Because when in grief, it's completely unnatural to gorge yourself on food. It feels wrong. It's the opposite of what you want to do. And Scott McKnight is saying, hey, there's something about realigning ourselves and our minds to this reality that that's actually the sin and death that we live in on so often a time that, yes, grief is sometimes going to do it for us, but there can be any point that we can access this reality that we are in a physical and broken world. And as we align our physical reality to that spiritual reality, we actually have the ability to experience a awakened view of reality, of what's really going on, of where sin is actually sin, of, where, of what is actually good and life-giving in this world, what actually sustains you, and what doesn't. I mean, that's, I feel like so much of what I like think about when I'm talking about sin in sermons and preaching is just like, trying to regularly remind us and myself that sin is ultimately not enjoyable. That we have this crazy lie that we believe that sin itself is fun, enjoyable, and yes, God doesn't like it, so I've got to do away with it, but if I could just do it a little bit and then repent of it later, I'd get the best of both worlds. And rather, if you actually look at sin, it's often boring. It leads to captivity. 
it's just this crazy thing of like, it's what kills you, and yet we're tempted into believing it's what brings life. And there's something about when I take away being well-fed, there's something about the discomfort of fasting that awakens me to that. Reference C.S. Lewis in his theological works, and I always also like to reference him in his fictional works, especially the ones that you don't read, uh, which is The Silver Chair, uh, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. And then if there's a character, Puddleglum, and Puddleglum is like just this character that is his name. He just is like uh, depressed and, and like very uh, pessimistic about everything that happens. And at one point, he and the two other children, who are not a part of the original book, um, are down in this cave. And they are in this cave, and there is a queen who convinces them that they're in this cave, and actually, this cave is all that there is. And there is no outside world. And that they're dreaming about the idea of a sun is just the reason, the, the fact that they've seen a lamp, and they're just dreaming of a bigger lamp. And the fact that they're dreaming of Aslan, a, a lion, is just that they've seen a cat. And they're just dreaming of a bigger cat. But it's not real. And at one point, Puddleglum, in his dazed state, accidentally steps into fire and burns his foot. And it says it's like the pain that awakens him. And all of a sudden, he looks around and he says, like, hey, you might be right. Maybe you're right. There is no other world. But if this really is the only world there is, then it's not worth living for. So I'm going to live as if there is another world, even if there's not one. Because if this is what there's to live for, then it's just no thanks. And it's about this sense of just like, He's awakened when they're warm. It talks about before when they're being lured into it. They're well fed. They're by a fire. All of their needs are attended to. And there's this lulling nature to it. But all of a sudden, pain introduces this sense of just a sniffing salt that wakes him up. And fasting often is that. It's a wakening of our senses of I am truly weak human being. I am completely dependent on things outside of myself to sustain me. And not only that, it starts drawing up all these heart desires of just like what's true in your soul. I mean, just like, you know, like the hangry experience is very much so a spiritual discipline that most of us spend our whole lives avoiding. Because once that starts coming up and it starts just bringing out real stuff we have to deal with, wakes us up to who we actually are, what we actually rely on. Dallas Willard, when talking about fasting, talks about, and I'll paraphrase this quote, it says something to the effect of, um, when we fast, we recognize all of the sinful or less than uh, powerful things that we kind of live off of and sustain ourselves off from day to day. And when you fast, all of a sudden those get exposed for not being good enough. And so you have to start looking at your whole life and saying, how have I directed my whole life into actually experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit as given to me through the power of the cross and resurrection of Jesus by the authority of the Father, that that actually, when I'm filled with that, I can enjoy all things. And I can have times where I take away those things. And that doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm 
I'm not, I haven't eaten, I'm filled on the Spirit. Like, it means, no, like, I'm still hungry, but there's something that's awakening me to the reality that there's more to this world, and there's deep things that I need to grieve, the sin in my soul, the death that's here, and also connect myself to just that Spirit that is very much so in present and dwelling in you. We talk about all the time that if you are a believer, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, which I think most of you, if you're me. Most of you are like, I'm sure that's true on a theoretical level, but I just don't feel like I understand that on any experiential level. And so much of us probably have no level of experiencing any sense of a spirit because, I mean, Scripture is very clear that often the spirit is going to come as a still, small voice in patient waiting when you remove other things that are otherwise turned up to volume 10 in your life. And so sometimes it's turning down things like being overstuffed and well-fed and having all your needs taken care of and just being really comfortable. It's turning down noise. It's turning down the busyness. Interestingly enough, in Ezekiel, I had this in Ezekiel. Where is this? I don't know. I'm going to paraphrase Ezekiel now. Uh, Where it says something to the effect of, the sin of Sodom, which is one of the cities that's destroyed in Genesis, said, hey, here's the sin of, your, uh, of Sodom, that they're well-fed and comfortable, and they don't think of others. And there's something about awakening to that through the pangs and the hunger pangs of literally just going without that, that bring us alive to what's true about ourselves, about this world, about what we rely on, and about that spirit that actually is living within us that is waiting to empower us. That Jesus, when he's going to face off the devil and replay the conundrum of humanity, that humanity, I mean, the Bible is almost a repeat of Genesis 1-3 over and over and over again. God provides and humanity takes. And God provides and he says, never mind, and they take. And then Matthew 4 comes up and it's almost meant to be like, okay, here we go again. It's happened a million times before, but yet... Jesus actually does what humanity's called to do. God provides and he just simply waits on God and takes from God. And in that place, in order to prepare for that, he awakens himself by a 40-day fast. And so we're going to be talking about fasting and wrestling through this here again next month. I just invite you uh, at this point to consider there's going to be an opportunity in your missional communities to participate in a corporate fast, uh, to fast together as a community and then break together as a community. It'll be in practice guides, uh, which MC leaders will be uh, able to download on soindy.com. And in doing that, uh, I just say a couple things. One, uh, there is no guilt or shame or even need to do this. There is far, and many people have noted this, there is no New Testament command telling you to fast. So if you want to go New Testament, you have no guilt or no even command to do this. So there you go, freedom there. Secondly, some of you might still see the sense of whether there's a command or not, there's an invitation to participate in something that even Jesus was said, hey, I want to like, connect to the Spirit and the Father through this, and so we invite you to it and, and invite you to try it. But then there's some of you that, like, this might not be the season for you. 
pregnant women or diabetics should not fast. Um, there's many other reasons maybe why you just in your body and what's going on is not a good season for you. Or maybe emotionally, that's not a good thing for you. That's okay. And this is an okay place to say, hey, just for me, for now, this is not right. And so we invite you instead into a time of fasting is just to pursue that healing maybe that you might need to press into at some deeper level, I don't know, taking another step into wherever you are with that, maybe pursuing counseling in that, pursuing wherever you are in your past history relationship to food. And so uh, in inviting you into that, again, there's no command. It's simply an invitation. Are you tired of being enslaved to your body, to the mastery of being comfortable? Are you tired of being complacent about your sin? I'm doing a lot of work in counseling myself, and I've found that the, the human body and psyche are so powerful at protecting itself, you can block out entire feelings and emotions just so you can survive. But they're still there. And you have to eventually go and work through them or they're just there without you really knowing that they're there. And some people are just like, man, I just don't have any, like I've lost all complacency, or I've lost all the uh, guilt and contriteness over my sin or over death, all this. Like, maybe it's very much so something that's very much so there, but out of survival, you had to re- push that down and segment it off. And fasting is a way to enter back into it, to actually feel it. Like, why would I want to? Because it's real. And because when you actually feel it, you can actually pursue healing from it, freedom from it. And are you tired of maxing out on the simple joys of this world and hitting that ceiling and realizing there's got to be more? So I invite you uh, to this practice of fasting as we will be walking through it in the next month. And I invite you in this moment not to fast, but to feast in the smallest of feasts, which is the act of communion. A moment where we come and, again, in a tangible, earthy, real way. Jesus doesn't just say, think about bread and wine or a cup or have juice and think about it being wine or whatever uh, every time you get together so that you can remember me. He says, no, take this and eat it. Take it into your body. Remind yourself that there is a deeper reality to this world that I have conquered sin and death and risen again, and I am coming to make all things new again. And yes, you are in the already not yet. You are in the it's already broken free, but it hasn't taken its full form yet. So that's why you need to take this and take it into you and remember that this is true. This is a better story and a more true story that you're holding on to. So I invite you to come forward and take of communion. There'll be stations around the room, including a gluten-free station up here. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for... Lord, you too, again, to just continue to where we need to just wrestle with some of these things, where I, I even admit, as I'm saying them, there's things where I'm wrestling with fasting that I, I'm still wrestling with how it all works together and how it all fits. How Colossians 3 of not having any... Uh, 
having an appearance of wisdom, but having no power and stopping the indulgence of the flesh uh, works out with Matthew 4 of a clarity in Jesus that we see of him saying and actually being able to resist temptation and sin. And so, Lord, as we continue to wrestle with these and uh, wrestle with it not just in an intellectual way, but in a physical way by participating with you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would not see a heart again of legalism, not see a heart of uh, triggering past anxieties or past uh, ill relationships with food, um, Lord, but rather we would find it to be an awakening to the reality of this world as it is, to ourselves as we are, and to the spirit that's within us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.